I remember the day that Brother Todd reached out to me and said, hey, I'd like to come and meet with you. Uh, my immediate thought was, what's what? What's wrong, right? And so I, I began to question just briefly and, you know, asking simply, um, hey, is everything okay with the kids? Is everything okay with you? Right? What's up? And he just said, hey, man, I, I just want to come meet. And my assumption, again, is as we wait the days for him to come meet, something's wrong. And so we exchanged pleasantries the day he arrives. And then in a moment, I just said, so, brother, tell me, why are you here? And I'll never forget in that moment what he shared. It was short, simple, and shocking. God sent me here to pray for you. And so for weeks, once a week, he would walk across during his lunch break and bring his yellow notepad and just ask me questions of how he could pray for me. He would listen, write those requests down, pray, and leave. Since that time, I'll be honest, there's been days when I've wondered and even prayed, when will someone show up and do that for him? But nonetheless, it was, it was just stirring and a season in which uh, I desperately needed someone to pray. And I remember finally, probably after a month or two, I just said, Brother, man, I would love to pray for you. How could I pray? And it, this, this statement just kept coming back. Total and complete surrender. Total and complete surrender. Today, as we come to this text, I think it ushers forward a call to all of us to total and complete surrender. I think the beauty of what compels us to that end is the beauty of Christ, of who Christ is as revealed in this text, the worth of the one to whom we surrender. I think the temptation for all of us as we read the Bible is that we begin to think, well, what's this have to do with me? Right? Like, I mean, how does this speak to me or how does this relate to my life or all the while missing the glory of the God of the Bible? We come just looking what's in it for us. And I think it's the truth today from this text is it's about him. Amen. It's not about you. It's not about me. Amen. It's about him. And listen, and that is good news. So listen, listen, if you come to the Bible reading each day thinking it's first about you, and it's not about him. I mean, that, that's a challenge, right? I mean, if every day when you open the text wondering, what's it about me today? Man, you're missing the glory of the God of the Bible. Amen. If you came to church this morning, your first thought was, right, I, I wonder how long the sermon's going to be, or if I like the songs that we're singing, or uh, any other preference you had, you've missed it because it's about him. Amen. If tomorrow morning you wake up and the first thing that you focus your entire day on is it's about him, Think about how that might look different when you walk into Dollar General or the doctor or when you interact with coworkers tomorrow. That perception and that focus of it's about Him. Today I want to set before you three primary ideas. One is Jesus' infinite worth is worthy of your total and complete surrender. Amen. Secondly, Jesus' infinite power is worthy of your total and complete surrender. Third and last, Jesus is infinite victory is worthy of your total and complete surrender. Amen. So today, let's wrestle with this text here in Matthew 8, verses 18 to 34, hearing the truth, it's about Him. So again, we launch out here first as we look to verses 18 to 22, seeing this truth, it's Jesus' infinite worth is worthy of your total and complete surrender. Listen to what happens. Remember, Jesus has just performed all these miraculous healings, and now Matthew moves, and He says to us in verse 18 of Matthew 8, now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, 
I will follow you wherever you go. Scribes were those who taught and interpreted the law. The scribe comes and confesses. Listen to what he says again. He says, teacher, I will follow you what? Wherever you go. And Jesus responds back to him saying that mantra, count the cost. Listen to what he says again. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere what? To lay his head. Jesus is telling us, listen, his ministry is one of constant hardships and constantly being on the move. The warning is clear. Those who follow Christ should not expect their best life now. Why? Because here's the Son of Man not experiencing his best life now. Listen to what he says again. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have his best life now. Do you see that? This is, it's a life of suffering, a life of sacrifice. And it's the reminder, if you follow Christ, your best life will not be now, but the one that is to come. Amen. You've got to hear that because, listen, this call to follow Him is one of great sacrifice, and it will not be easy, beloved. So what displays Christ here about His infinite worth, right? What shows us this God is worthy of total and complete surrender? I think it's the fact that it reveals his humility in this moment. Listen again. Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I mean, Jesus says, again, look at his title for himself. This title he uses quite often, especially throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew. Son of Man. He, he's the Messianic figure. He's the one, the Old Testament, all the texts they look forward to and promised. He's the fulfillment, the hope of the one who can take on the sin of humanity, die in the place, in the presence of God, suffering God's wrath, bringing forgiveness to those who repent and believe. They, they could be filled with the Holy Spirit and indwell the presence of God for all eternity. He is the Son of Man. And he has nowhere to lay his head. He's God in the flesh. And yet instead of demanding what God should do for him or what God should give him, he humbly accepts whatever God's will for him is. If we don't behold the beauty of the cross, then we will consider the current places that we lay our heads as of more value than where God is calling us to go. Uh, this past week, I was reading the story of a missionary that served 15 plus years in a difficult place. And other missionaries were just amazed by her joy, her contentment in life. And they began to press and ask, listen, how, how do you live so differently than the rest of us? And she said this. She said, listen, when I arrived here, I, I, I made this commitment to the Lord that I wouldn't complain about the weather, about the food, about the people even everything I was missing at home. See, well, I believe when we begin to complain, it's a sign, listen, that we're struggling to accept God's will for our lives. In fact, the Bible compels you and I to do everything without what? Complaining or arguing. That is a mantra at the Jesse household. Bonds, I think your mic's on, bro. Either that or you've gotten really loud and sound like the Lord there, right? Um, <clears throat> that's a scary moment, right? Listen, uh, I was like, Lord, Lord, man, thought we were going to be on a Damascus road. I was going to tell everybody, get down, face this on the ground in this place. Man, um, 
Uh, wow, that, that conjures up, man, of, of, of the Old Testament text where it, it talks about those in heaven uh, that, that God laughs, right? As man makes his plans, the one in heaven, I think it's Psalm 2, Brother Todd, maybe where you preached here just a few weeks back, the one in heaven laughs at man's plans to come against God. And um, he says he holds them in derision. So anyway, so what happens here? Listen, I think, again, we have to ask in this text, how does a prosperity gospel, listen, it, it just, the prosperity gospel is not here just in America, right? It's spread to the nations. I remember we got to Africa. That was one of the primary things that the, that the country of Africa was dealing with is prosperity preachers. But we have to ask as we read this text, and Jesus is saying again that he has nowhere to lay his head, right? We have to ask here, those that proclaim the prosperity gospel, if you'll do this, if you'll give that, then, then God will bless you with this great treasure. He's going to provide you all this prosperity. Why? Because here is the Son of Man, the sinless Son of God. And beloved, He's not even staying at the Holiday Inn. He's, not, he, he's at the Motel Zero. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And I think that this humility of Christ has to point somewhere beyond. Pointing us ultimately, right, as we look toward the cross. And reminding us of Philippians 2, that He humbled Himself and became obedient even unto what? Death. Even death on what? On a cross. It's this reminder that Christ, listen, beloved, he is worthy of your total and complete surrender, and He displays it by His humility. Secondly, Jesus, I think, displays His infinite worth by His demand. Listen to what happens in the following text, verses 21 to 22. Another of the disciples said to Him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And, and I think Luke's gospel says, and you go proclaim the gospel. Right. And listen, again, this is this is one that's a disciple, another disciple who's now coming and saying, Jesus, listen, I, I want to follow you. Right. But let me first go. I got to first do this and then I'll come and follow you. My initial reaction when I read this text was I began to think, what made God asking me to give up in order to follow him? And I think that's so often our first response when we read the Bible, instead of saying, what does this text must be saying about God? Why, who is Jesus that he can make this kind of statement to someone who seemingly has such a, a logical response, right? I mean, think about it for a moment. How could Jesus dismiss this man's desire to care for his father, right? Exodus chapter 20, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your what? Your father and mother. He says that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land your Lord your God has given you. And we know from Jesus' sermon back in Matthew 5, he said, Listen, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but instead to what? Fulfill them. So how is Jesus apparently looks like he's going against the law, but in fact he's not. And listen, the, the, the difficulty of this text is, as I began to study other scholars, I began to see guys, listen, that like it's just hard to explain what Jesus is saying here. Some are trying to like soften it up so it sounds easy or more palatable that we could take it in, right? I mean, because this is just a really hard saying of Jesus. It's possible, right, some scholars believe that maybe the man's father was old and struggling and likely going to die soon, but he hadn't died yet. And I thought, well, man, the truth is, if that is the case, that's applicable to us. Right, like, I mean, some of you are, like, waiting for retirement to, like, really start serving the church. Others of you, maybe you're thinking, like, well, when I get married, 
then like then we'll go on missions i I don't i'm not really comfortable going on missions by myself but like the moment we get married then listen we're going to launch into that others of you listen you're just thinking like the moment you have kids and once you have kids then you're going to be serious about studying the bible in your home you're going to be serious about praying because they're going to need it it seems to be what this man's saying right lord let me first go and bury my father so it's possible that's it it's also possible that maybe this is just heightened speech remember jesus says if your eye causes you to sin do what Pluck it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, what do you say? Cut it off. But even if this is this hyperbole, right, this, this heightened extreme speech, what's the point of hyperbole? To prove a serious point. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, listen, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus is saying to him, my worth is greater than anyone or anything else. And my worth is worthy of your total and complete surrender. I want to ask you, right? Again, I don't know. Some of you are not there yet in math, but this equation is just Jesus greater than, right? So just think simply right there. One is greater than what? Zero, right? One's greater than zero or anything less than one, right? So maybe just for a moment, think about this equation, right? Jesus greater than. How might you fill that in? I mean, for this man, it has to be Jesus greater than family. And for some of you... There may come a day when Jesus calls you to leave family, grandparents or parents, aunts or uncles or cousins. Yet for some of you, it may just mean that Jesus is calling you to come and worship and serve in the church even though your spouse isn't on board. For some, right, you need to write in that blank, Jesus is greater than, it might be finances. Maybe you've been thinking all your life that you're going to save for that ultimate retirement or others of you think, man, life is short and you're going to live up and live it up now. You may not even live to be old. But what if today, in light of all that God is doing in his word and the fact of Jesus worth it, maybe you might begin to give sacrificially to help a, a young family or some other family adopt. Or maybe God might cause you to use those finances to adopt. Maybe even for some of you, it's just the next step as you look toward this Christmas and you're thinking, man, listen, it's been a rough year for us and we just need to go all out and spoil the children, grandchildren, whatever. What if in light of that instead, you wrote, Jesus is greater than Christmas gifts? And because of that, you and your family launch heavy into Operation Christmas Child. And you pack more boxes than you've ever packed. You desire to give sacrificially your finances, the leverage that take the gospel to the nations in that way. Listen, I don't know what it is for you, but you need to decide Jesus is greater than. It may be family. It may be friends. It may be your house. It may be sports. It may be your job. It may be convenience. And for some of you, it may be Greensburg KY. For some of you, it may be Jesus is greater than even America. God may one day call you to go. So listen, not only does Jesus have infinite worth, I think the next text shows us that Jesus has infinite power. And that infinite power is worthy of your total and complete surrender. Listen to what he says, showing us Jesus' power now over nature. Beginning in verse 23 of Matthew 8. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that, right, says the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? That even the sea, the winds, obey him. Listen, don't remember, don't forget about who these guys are. These guys are fishermen. 
Right, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they're daddies. That's what their daddies did. They worked with their dads. They've, I'm sure, seen numerous storms. And yet, listen again to their words back here in verse 25. They cry out to Jesus, save us. They believe they are what? They believe they're perishing. They believe they're going to die. Right? This is real fear that is striking them. And look what happens in this moment. Jesus reveals his power. Notice what he does here simply again. He rose and he rebuked. Right? Some of the Gospels recording this account, notice, notice they actually specify what he says. Right? He says, peace what? Be still. His rebuke with the words, right, come. Likely, listen, just because you, you know this story well doesn't mean that you should dismiss it. I mean, let's be honest. Who of us today could walk out on, on Green River and calm even Green River? I mean, even if maybe you've got a small creek that runs by your house or you know a small creek that's small, I mean, listen, when that water is moving and there's a storm coming through, I mean, you may be, if it's, even if it's small, you may be able to do something to divert it, but you can't stop it and make it calm. The point is, listen, we don't need to miss this fact. Nobody can do what he's doing but God. And so if Jesus is doing that, that must mean that he's what? He's God. Matthew's wanting you to see something. He's wanting his Jewish audience to see that the God of the Old Testament who could calm the sea has now showed up in flesh. And it's Jesus Christ. He's the true Son of God. Now listen, we often read this text and we so often make this jump that, hey, listen, if you're going through a storm, Jesus can calm it for you. But look what Matthew's point seems to be in verse 27 of Matthew 8. Look what he says. And the men marveled. And they asked the question, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Matthew seems to say to us, guys, don't miss that he is God. It's about him. You may hear that today and it sounds offensive like, well, does that mean he doesn't care about me? No, but you only begin to listen. You only begin to reveal the truth of your worth and your hope and your identity while understanding who he first is. It's him that brings your true identity. It's him that brings your true hope. It's about him, beloved. So listen, Jesus' infinite power also calls for your total and complete surrender displayed by your faith. Look again back in verse 26. Remember, they say, save us, verse 25, Lord, we're perishing. And he asked them that question, why are you afraid, O you of what? Little faith. Notice he doesn't say no faith. He's just saying that their faith, right, is, is little or it's deficient. And listen again. Notice in the moment right here, again, verse 26, and he says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Notice the statement that Matthew makes. Then, what's he do? He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So look what happens here. When is their faith challenged? It's pri- is it prior to the storm being calmed or after the storm's calm? When is it? So look at me again. And he says to them, why are you afraid, O you a little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Do you see it? Their faith is challenged in the midst of the storm. Right? I mean, it's in those moments I think he's saying, guys, my infinite power and worth is worthy of your faith in the midst of the storm. Even before I've stilled the storm or even before I've answered every what if question about you have about following me. He says, I want you to have faith now. Listen, the, the faith the storms that you and I, or the crisis of faith that we experience, it is an opportunity for all of us to confess our faith in Christ, our trust in Him. 
biblical scholar Matthew Henry states, he does not rebuke them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. Listen to that again. He does not rebuke them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. Also, we see that Jesus' infinite power calls for your total and complete surrender, and it's displayed by discipleship. Look what happened again back to the first of the text here in verse 23. And when he got into the boat. So remember, we just had this moment where two different people have come and said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, well, listen, foxes have holes, birds of air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another guy says, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you. But first, let me go and bury my father. And he says, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. And as Luke records, and you go and proclaim the gospel. Look what happens here. The very next text picks up verse 23 of Matthew 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples do what? They follow him, don't they? I don't think we can miss that Matthew is showing us that the call to discipleship is great. And the reminder is it doesn't require perfect faith. Why? Because these guys are struggling when just Jesus defines their faith as little. So if you're waiting for the perfect moment when you'll have enough faith, like, oh, if I do enough, have enough faith, If I just believe enough, then maybe God will accept me. No, listen, God sees you and my imperfect faith. He sees our imperfect belief, and yet God's credit His Son's righteousness unto us. It's God who is the author, and as Hebrews says, He's the author and finisher, or some translations render it, He's the author and the perfecter of your faith. It's He that perfects your and my faith. But I think Matthew's showing us something here. That it's important about discipleship, and it's this. Discipleship doesn't happen at a distance. I mean, my assumption is today, if you were desiring to learn one of these musical instruments, likely you're going to find a skilled musician that can come and spend time with you or your child or whomever, right? You're you're going to have to be in their presence. For some of you, you you desire to learn how to cook, but, I mean, sometimes just taking a recipe and trying to read it and throw it in there and do. But, man, if you can spend time with your granny or somebody at the stove, and watch them do and see that. Like, I mean, you're still not always going to catch what a pinch of this is and a slice of that. I mean, like when I'm doing with Emily, she's like, baby, don't measure it. Just throw it in. I mean, like, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, she's just firing away this, that, cut, this, that. I mean, I'm out here like measuring everything, like taking in, you know, like there's just something about being in their presence. For some of you, listen, I mean, you could read a book about praying and witnessing, but man, there is nothing like being in the presence of a man or a woman of God and hearing them pray or watching them share the gospel. Listen, guys, I I think as a church, I want to compel us to consider discipleship in relationship to community. Now, we've been striving after that some on Sunday nights to spend time just discussing how, how how do we understand the Scriptures, praying for each other, holding each other accountable, challenge each other to share our faith. But I want some of you to continue to consider, again, in the midst of this season, and we don't know what all's ahead, but, man, often you can gather with maybe one or two other people, right? You can, you can social distance really much easier, right? You can do those things. So I want to challenge you to begin to consider, what does it look like for you to spend time in discipleship relationships in community with other believers in this church? Because, again, his disciples got in the boat, and they followed him. They spent time in his presence. They were with him. So Jesus' infinite victory... Right, it's the last thing that we're going to come to here. We've already been reminded, right, that Jesus' infinite worth was worthy of our total and complete surrender. We heard now that Jesus' infinite power to calm the storm was, it was worthy of our total and complete surrender. Third, we're going to see that Jesus' infinite victory in verses 28 to 34 is worthy of your total and complete 
surrender. Listen to how Matthew now records, right? He's just showed Jesus' power over nature. Now he's going to show you the power of Jesus over demons and Satan. Verse 28 of Matthew 8. And when he came to the other side, to, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met, met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Wow. Notice again back here in verse 29. As, so we, let's look at verse 28. So the context is two demon-possessed men, right, who are so fierce that no one could pass that way. Look what happens here. Behold, they cry out, which presumably, given the context of what's getting ready to happen, these are now demons that are speaking through this individual, right? I realize the context of children, so I'm trying to be as as surface as I can, but nonetheless, that's what's happening. You need to understand what's happening here, okay? Notice what they say here. They speak in. Look what they speak of. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to what? Torment us before what? The time. There's a lot happening, right? We could, we could slow down right here and spend 30 minutes walking through. I'm going to try to give you a, a brief overview of what's taking place, right? So here, here's what's happening. The demons know that at some point there's going to come a place of torment at some time. What they were not prepared for seemingly here is for Jesus Christ to become the Son of God. Right, I mean, in the sense, uh, I misspoke there. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to become flesh. They were not prepared for, for the incarnation, right? Fully God, fully man. They weren't, right? And we see that unfolding even as Matthew opens his gospel, as Herod's trying to kill him, all these things unfolding, right? There's a work of, of Satan in the demonic world trying to bring this to an end. But nonetheless, listen, they're not sure exactly what Jesus is doing here. And they're asking, listen, have you come to torment us before the time? Jesus, what are you doing? And, and listen, it begins to give us a, some clarity. And Matthew's gospel begins to show us in, in language that Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God begins to push back on the power of darkness. Demons are being cast out. People are repenting and believing. People are being healed. Right? I mean, we have places in the Bible, we're going to even come to it maybe next week, where as a result of sin and different things, that people are, are, are physically suffering because of their sin. It happens. And Jesus is coming in, healing those things. Jesus is coming in and driving back the darkness. And so listen, they know that there's coming a day in which those demons will experience the torment for eternity. But listen, they're asking the question now, are you here to do that now? And we know that ultimately, listen, it's not until Jesus comes unto the cross that he makes this defeat, this death blow of Satan. I mean, we hear it in Paul's words to the church at Colossae in Colossians 2 and 15. It says, and having disarmed, right? That word indicates it's a military term to say, like literally stripping naked the warriors of another army. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, 
and triumphing over them. It says he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. It was ultimately Christ's death, burial, resurrection, right? His defeat of Satan's power over us that today, if you would repent and believe, you would be forgiven and the Holy Spirit of God would indwell you by faith, that you would be born again, that you could live a redeemed life and you could enter into the presence of God for all eternity. It's the work of God. It's the power of Christ. It's just Jesus' infinite victory is being displayed to us. Why? Because it gives us a glimpse, right? This moment right here gives us a glimpse of what's going to happen into eternity. Look what happens in the text. Again, let's, let's fast forward here to verse 32. And he says to them, seemingly, Jesus is now speaking back to the, the demons, right? Because watch what happens. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went to the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. You may be wondering again, what's happening? Well, Jesus is showing us a picture of what's ultimately going to happen. Matthew is revealing it. And we get this, this final culmination as John writes his revelation. Look at it, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and notice the familiarity or the similarity in the text. Look what he says, verse 10 of Revelation 20. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Three things to notice. Look quickly. Number one is this. They are thrown into the what? The lake of fire. Where did the, where did the pigs go in Matthew 8? They went into the sea, right? Similar imagery, right? See it happening? The demons are going off in that herd of pigs off in the sea to be drowned. So it is at the end time, right? This lake of fire. This, it's a picture of the judgment that is coming. Secondly, notice again what happens. And they will be, what's he say here? Come on, call and response. And they will be what? Tormented day and night. Do you remember the demons? What was their question? Son of, son of God, have you come to what? Torment us before the appointed time. Similar, same language. Third, right? Notice again here that we have this statement. And the sulfur, it says, and, and they were thrown in the lake of fire and the sulfur where the beast and the false prophet, right? So now we have the beast and the false prophet were, right? We don't have time to walk through this. We walked through the book of Revelation at one point. Lord willing, we'll, may we return there someday. But notice this again. The beast and the false prophet are thrown there. We have the thousand years and they're still there. And notice what the text says. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever in hell, beloved. You are neither consumed nor annihilated. It's forever and ever. And you won't be redeemed. You won't come to the light while a thousand years later the beast and the false prophet have not repented nor turned of their ways or their wickedness. They are still in rebellion against the Holy God. What's my point? We so often listen to music and movies that seem like hell's one big party. Beloved, it's not. It's a lake of fire. It's a place that even demons beg in that moment not to go there. And we often make little of hell, seeming like it's no big deal. All my buddies are going to be there. We're going to party it up. There's no partying in hell. You're suffering the wrath of God forever and ever. And if demons don't want to go there, beloved, you ought to be clued in this morning of the awfulness and the terribleness of what this must mean. It's a place of torment forever and ever. Listen. I think as I read Matthew 8, my quick reaction is, what do I need to sacrifice today to follow you? Right? Because those guys, hey, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go. Or maybe what storm am I in right now? And God, how might you calm it? Or 
God, what, what strongholds, right? What work of Satan is, is there in my life that I need deliverance from? Those questions are not wrong. So don't mishear me. But I don't think this should be our first response when we come to this text. Why? Because the text is about him. Listen to these words from Jen Wilkins. She writes it in her book, Women of the Word. She's a Christian author, uh, leads women's Bible studies. Ladies, I want to compel you. Get this book, check it out. But as you look toward women's studies, Jen Wilkins, write it down. Her, she is solid. Listen to what she says. We are like Moses. The Bible is our burning bush. A faithful declaration of the presence and holiness of God. We ask it to tell us about ourselves. And all the while, it's telling us about I am. The point is, Moses keeps saying, Lord, how could I do this? Lord, how could I do that? And God just keeps responding, I am. I am. I am. I am the one. I am. Right? I mean, I'm your sufficiency. Why? We just come to the Bible so often and we think, what's in it for us? And God's saying, it's all about me. And if you know who I am, it'll take care of everything about you. Jen continues to write in her book and she says this, We think that if it would just tell us who we are and what we should do, then our insecurities, fears, and doubts would vanish. But our insecurities, fears, and doubts can never be banished by the knowledge of who we are. They can only be banished by the knowledge of I am. We must read and study the Bible with our ears trained on hearing God's declaration of himself. Maybe four things in closing. One is, slow down when you read the Bible and ask, what does this text say about God? Before you start wondering, what all has it got to say to me, about me, what does this first and foremost say about God? Secondly, because of Jesus' infinite worth, then maybe you need to ask today, what are you holding on to that you're not willing to put in that equation, Jesus is greater than today? What is there to surrender? There's something. Again, it may be family, it may be finances, it may be, I don't know what it is for you. But there are reasons why you're not willing to surrender and lay down your life to follow Him. Thirdly, how does your faith in Jesus' infinite power overcome your fears or the storms or challenges you face? Or maybe better yet, how does Jesus' infinite power compel you to worship Him in the storm? Fourth and last, since Jesus will bring the ultimate victory, whose side are you on? I don't want to make light of Satan. Jude kind of warns of that. But I want you to know that if you're following Satan, you're following a loser. Right? I mean, that little, I know that little dance the kiddos do. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to make light. I know he's a roaring lion. I know that unless God protects me, he would absolutely devour me. And in my flesh, I have no ability to stand against him. But I want you to know, beloved... Today, if you are in rebellion, you are refusing to repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ, you are following a loser that will lead you to a place of never-ending torment. Practically, does that make any sense? No, none of us want to follow a loser. Today, see that the victory is only in Christ. I pray by the Spirit of God through His Word today that He's opening your eyes to see the worth and the beauty of Christ. That you today, by the beauty of Christ and His Word, that you're seeing His infinite power. And beloved, I pray today that you leave convinced that His victory is final and ultimate because He holds all power. So who's worthy of your total and complete surrender? Jesus? Only Jesus. Who has the power to raise the dead? Who can save us from our sin? He is our hope, our righteousness. Jesus, what? Only Jesus. 
Who can make the blind to see? Who holds the keys that set us free? He paid it all to bring us peace. Jesus what? Only Jesus. Holy King, Almighty Lord, saints and angels all adore. I join with them and bow before Jesus. Only Jesus. Today, would you respond and come? Father, in the name of Christ, I do pray that we would see you first and foremost in this text, in God, your beauty and in light, and as your word says, Lord, in the light of Christ, everything else is rubbish. Father, I pray today for people to see the beauty of Christ, his power, and Lord, whatever it is you're calling them to surrender, lay down. It's going to look unique for each, but God, I pray that we all here will be willing and obedient to say, Jesus, you are greater than that. I surrender it all because of who you are. Father, I pray now for those who are struggling with storms and keeping their faith and just just being wrecked. I pray, Father God, today that they would see that your power is enough to keep their faith strong even in the midst of storms and weakness. Finally, Lord, for those right now who are following Satan, let them see that one day he will be cast in the lake of fire forever and ever, and all who follow him will be as well. Today, Father God, may they repent of their sins and believe on the name of Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. I pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus, only Jesus. Amen. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.